Hello dear heart, welcome to the Flourishing Practitioners Podcast, where we talk all things about space holding, caring for our clients and succeeding in our businesses. We explore the wisdom from coaches, counsellors and healers. My name's Gabrielle Walker and I'm so honoured that you're here. Let's dive in. Hi beauties. This podcast has gone in all different directions around space holding, the support we seek as practitioners, the different ways that we can think about healing and oh I don't know exactly where I'm going to land but it's such a pleasure. Today we speak with Liz Andrew Brake who is one of my supervisors. So a supervision is a practice that in some fields is regulated you're required to have it if you are holding space and and in others isn't. So I sought out supervision with Liz prior to being required to have it as part of my registration for anything because I really knew and felt that I needed someone to talk things over with at times. When we're holding deep space for clients, we have a Agreement of confidentiality, I do at least, and the places to process this falls outside our normal friendship groups or our normal aspects of sharing. And if you're in private practice or working alone or working from home, you may not have this capacity to speak with colleagues as you would if you were in a practice with other practitioners Or as Liz alludes to here, if you don't have colleagues you feel safe to speak to, if your workplace environment is insecure or unhealthy, or if you don't have colleagues that you know you can speak to. So I really advise that healers and counsellors, social workers, anyone who is holding space has access to supervision. Now it's not clarified often, I feel, about what type of supervision you need and As with counselling or psychology or healing, every single person has their own style. I personally prefer a more fluid supervision style where I can debrief and process and also explore different ways to see things or see things that I may be working with with regular clients. And at the same time, I also appreciate being able to really just have a safe space to land to be challenged safely and to be challenged in a way that supports my clients. So I find we took around this within our discussion, but I want to emphasize that supervision is a place where you take honestly your insecurities about your practice, you looking, you're holding an energy of wanting to grow. So similar-ish to coaching And you're also being willing to learn from someone who's been there and done that. Often supervisors are people who have been in the field for a while and people who have a breadth of knowledge maybe across fields or in different experiences. Some people seek out supervision that is specialised in the area they are working in. I personally like seeking supervision outside of my field because it helps me to expand my ideas and my brain beyond practice norms yet we explore this more within this particular podcast i so look forward to you connecting with liz i adore her energy and let's dive in so welcome everyone today i'm talking with liz andrew break 
my supervisor, who's also a social worker, supervisor and coach, obviously, uh, I, she works on Neura, is that how you say it? Neura country yeah. of the Darug people, but she's a Pākehā woman, for, which means non-Māori, and has lived in Australia for the past 11 years. So there's a few of us Kiwis over here. She has been working as a social worker for more than 16 years and across Australia, New Zealand and the UK in the child protection sector and government and non-government in a variety of different roles. Uh, and through her own journey of burnout and vicarious trauma, which I'm super interested in, uh, she learned about the importance of supervision and that's inspired her to open up her own business. And she gets to work with inspiring practitioners like me and now you all as part of their journeys. So welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. <laughs> what led you to go into social work? What What do you feel called to share about that? You know, it's interesting. I've kind of reflected on this a lot over the years. And I kind of fell into it. I went to uni it was kind of expected of me I didn't really question whether I would go to uni or not and I just turned up and kind of fell into social work and the moment I just didn't really know what I wanted to do someone had said oh try social work I was doing psychology and it just didn't really it just wasn't really quite fitting with me it was quite it's quite scientific even though I quite like science it just doesn't really speak to me I was a bit bored yeah. Started yeah, the okay. psychology and I was like oh stats like what yeah like, stats you know there was lots of talk about rats and I was just like oh this is just not you know you, you, you're like I'm just like oh this is not for me and so someone was like oh try social work and then like from my first paper I just was obsessed and I loved it so I changed over but when I kind of think back like my mum's a nurse that kind of caring type professions and probably for me personally the type of person I am it made a lot of sense but yeah, I just kind of fell into it. And I went straight from school to uni. So, you know, when I was first graduated, I was very young. I don't always recommend that. I don't know if that's the best, you know, but it has meant, it's given me lots of amazing experience. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, that's, I really understand that. I took a different path, but similar in my reaction to psychology and I trans. I changed to community development because yes. I was like, oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> but I ended up doing a minor in um, social psychology, which focuses more oh, on the community aspect of psychology. So I, I found yeah. that interesting. But yeah. the, actual, the rats and the dead white guys. And I yeah, like, I know. What? And it was, I just was like, how does this apply to what I might want to do in the future? I just couldn't see, you know, how it, it was interesting, but no. Nah. Was your burnout journey what led you there? That how did that come about? It's a long journey. As as burnout, off, I was really young when I first kind of fell into social work, and I started. I went straight working in child protection. I worked in South Auckland, which is quite a low socioeconomic area. You know, it was just quite. It was quite um, confronting, I guess. So when you become a social worker or whatever profession where you're helping people you're often not really prepared for how to manage that and so I kind of just pushed through I moved countries I you know worked in lots of different areas and I think when I look back I was suffering various forms of burnout and vicarious trauma but just didn't even realize it didn't even realize what it was kind of thing it just wasn't really talked about and you just kind of push it down and keep on going that's just the nature of the work 
and then I became a manager in Australia actually and um, I just wasn't really enjoying it anymore and I ended up applying for a job that was um, as a practice lead so it wasn't kind of I guess frontline I wasn't working with clients anymore and it actually gave me an opportunity to stand back because there wasn't this crisis or adrenaline and it was really hard. It kind of took me about 12 months, I think, to adjust to this different pace. And I realized that I was really kind of addicted to adrenaline. It was just part of who I was, especially because I was so young when I started, you know, my early 20s. Yeah, it was an, almost an addiction. It was really uncomfortable to kind of come out of that. I was really quite depressed and anxious. And I just, I realized that I was burnt out and that also that I had vicarious trauma. So, you know, elements of my worldview had changed from working in the sector. Yeah, there was a variety of things that were happening. When I started realizing this, I was like, oh, this is why I'm feeling like that. And, you know, as I said, it happened once I was away from that. I almost needed to step away from it to totally realize it. And I started kind of delving into, you know, how I could you know, doing a lot of self-reflection, I'm quite a reflective person, you know, sort of realizing that, oh, um, supervision, I hadn't had a lot of really good supervision <laughs> throughout my career. And then when I kind of landed in roles where I was required to provide supervision, but um, I was a ma their manager, I don't know if I was the best supervisor in that time, because it wasn't yeah, it's tied to outcomes rather than their well-being per se. Exactly. You know, people get promoted because they're good at what they do, but they don't necessarily get taught the skills to be that next person. So I never, that next roll up. And so I never really got taught how to be a supervisor. And also it's a really busy roles. Lots of us working, you know, how yeah, can and, you- And your skill set until that point was like, go, 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 go on adrenaline, yeah. which actually isn't what you're wanting to impart. I look back in some of that thinking, oh, God, you know, you kind of cringe as you do sometimes when you look back on things, but it was all learning. And I just realized, oh, and so it just took me on a yeah, a journey of learning more about supervision. What was good supervision? What's important? Yeah, that really helped me. But how would you view or consider supervision as a practice? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's so many layers to it, but I guess on a kind of really it's a joint relationship so it's a joint endeavor you, to have supervision it has to be with a supervisee and a supervisor and so it's about the practitioner if I'll use the word practitioner or supervisee that they um, are given an opportunity in a space to talk about clients to think about their own relationship in relation to the client, so thinking about their bias and judgment, the, how their previous previous experiences might influence that relationship or the way that they work with that client. Um, it's building on their development. There's so many layers to it. And, and the tricky thing is, you know, people get confused about what's the difference between counselling and um, supervision. And supervision is really work-related. So it's you might bring in personal things because obviously that's impossible. You might say, look, this is impacting my relationship with this particular client because she reminds me of my mother or something, you know? So you talk about that, but it is quite separate from say something like counseling. Um, yeah. And the whole idea of supervision, I should say as well, is that ultimately it's about the, the um, practitioner or the supervisee being able to be the best that they can to work with clients and also developing their skill set and well-being. Yeah, I always think of it as like 
the supervision practice is like about our clients. So it's it's supporting our clients because if yeah. we're the best practitioner, it's about our clients. And so sometimes to be the best practitioner, we have to sort through some personal shit too, like that the trigger and yeah. that we're receiving from a client or that that whatever dilemma, processual dilemma that we're having could be our own shit. So yeah, we, yeah. we do need to take it to counselling, but sometimes it is the moment to process it a little bit in supervision, but with a professional lens. Yeah, and thinking uh, about how it's impacting on those particular things yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. Can you define uh, vicarious trauma for those of us who don't know what it is? Or yes. It's a really yeah. important concept, I think. So burnout, vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue, like we kind of use them interchangeably, but they are quite different. So burnout can happen to anyone, a lack of support and lack of resources. So anyone can get burnout. So you can, you know, be a high flying office worker or, you know, well, not even that, you know, you can be another in another role and you can get vicarious trauma is when you're exposed to other people's trauma. And so it happens when you listen to, yeah, when you're exposed to and listen to other people's story of their trauma. The symptoms of vicarious trauma are very similar to trauma symptoms. They play out in the same way. And, you you know, you can get it even just from reading. So roles that might read or people that might read a lot of traumatic material that can create it or face-to-face, you know, if you're a counsellor or, you know, whatever that might be. You know, vicarious trauma and trauma the symptoms are pretty much the same yeah mm-hmm. and so vicarious trauma is interesting it can I mean I could go on and on about vicarious trauma but it can actually shift your world view so it makes you see things through a different lens because of what you get exposed to and so an example that I always use it's something that really struck me is that when I worked in child protection and I was working with a lot of families where things weren't going well and you know maybe relationships weren't great and things like that And so when I used to see kind of a nice family interaction on the street, it would really like hit me in the feels and it would be so heartwarming, like it was this really unusual thing. And so my brain kind of got warped into thinking that that was unusual because I was so exposed to it through my role of certain types of families that were kind of entering the child protection system. So yeah, that's that's an example, but there's loads of different examples where your worldview might change. I love it. I could talk about it for ages. And compassion fatigue is where you're in a, in caring roles. So that is can be through our kind of roles like counselling, social work, but also that can come about from nursing. Um, if you're caring for, say, elderly parents or um, disabled family members, things like that. So it's basically where you're just doing a lot of care. You've got a lot of caring responsibilities. And so over time, your compassion just wanes and it has a massive impact on you and that's something really for people to be aware of because often in our lives not only are we work we've got our work that we're doing but then often we're caring for children parents siblings so yeah something definitely for women you know I won't go off on that one but you know that I experienced that uh, recently where I was like I think I've got compassion fatigue because people like friends or family would be telling me things and I was just like almost numb like I I couldn't like I knew there was a human response and I cared but I couldn't care you don't have the energy yeah Yeah. yeah. and then it was like okay back out of this we've got you've got to create something different in your world uh and and would you say that that's a really common 
element that does bring people to supervision? Yes, yes, it definitely is. Also, just to mention that like vicarious trauma in particular, it's inevitable in the work that we do. So everyone ex- will experience vicarious trauma. If you're working with people that have experienced trauma, you will experience it in some degree. But what you want to make sure is if you think about it, I often think about it on a continuum, is that you catch it early on and that you put things in place to support yourself rather than letting it get really bad. You know, you hear of really tragic stories of people getting, you know, say police or something, getting PTSD and things. And so you really want to catch it early because it's a lot easier to do things about it early on. Not to say that you can't do something if it's way down the other end of the continuum, but it's just a lot easier to catch. But yeah, so I'd say most people yeah, come to see me when they're noticing that they've got burnout or vicarious trauma. That's a really common thing. Also, interestingly, kind of toxic workplaces is a really common one as well people trying to manage that and I think that that also brings in elements of that yeah that vicarious trauma and burnout too when I did my supervisor training I'm supervisor counseling and healers but when I did my supervisor training I noticed that workplace thing I was like oh this is systematic it yeah. just felt really heavy I was like oh but I don't know yeah. is is uh, supervision required in the social workspace or is it not optional well it's interesting so in Australia we, the social work profession doesn't have to be it's not registered so theoretically anyone can call themselves a social worker so I'm registered with the Australian Association of Social Workers so if you are registered with them then yes you have to prove in order to get your registration that and yearly you have to do 10 hours of supervision um, and you used to be able to have any type of supervision but they've recently changed their practice standards so you actually have to have it with a social worker. I, I think I sought you out before I had finished my counselling training because I was in that like feeling very isolated so it was like the opposite of being in a workplace and just going okay this you know you can't you're not allowed to talk about your clients things but you're trying to process that on your own they're not often not an ethical dilemma it's like there's all this information and I'm trying to move it through my system which maybe has no idea about the circumstance like I'm getting pockets of hours of information all downloaded into me and I'm trying to process through like the best course of action that's actually not an ethical dilemma it's it's something else I I kind of call it a processing even if you think oh it didn't really it seemed non a (laughs) non-event sometimes things you do need to talk about and so sometimes I you know I usually start supervision by saying oh is there anything you really want to talk about or what you want to get out of today and lots of people are like I just want to talk about this like I don't need you to do anything I just need someone to talk through with I'm like okay yeah I really appreciate that about you I've I've had other supervisors when I because when I was first looking for supervisors and they were like right here's our schedule and I was just what if something else happened? Yeah. <laughs> what if I'm not in, like, that's not what I need. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and how would you describe yourself as a supervisor? I am very flexible. I mean, what we were just saying, like, I really want to mould supervision to what's going to meet people's needs. I think there's just not one size fits all. I'm not an agenda type person. <laughs> that's not me. In fact, I had someone the other day, we had a first session and they said, oh, do you set an agenda? And I said, well, look, if you want an agenda, I'm happy to do that. And she said, no, I don't want it. I said, okay. Because <laughs> I th- I find most people don't kind of, and it just naturally, I like the relationship to develop a really strong relationship, to get to know each other and then just see how that develops. And some 
threads of conversation, we might take that in a, to a certain place and supervision. Yeah, I'm quite flexible, but I also like to have a laugh. You know, you'll probably find me maybe talk about the patriarchy or, you know, something like that in the middle of a session because I can't help myself. But, you know, <laughs> I've got to bring some of that, you know, social work. Uh... <laughs> I really, really, really value that. I don't know if it was our last session or the session before where it was, you were like, right, well, we can look at this at like the individual, the client, the community and the society. And there's something in my body that's just like, because it sorts it out instead of there's like right and wrong I one of my clients shared this with me but I also really value it that there's processual accountability and task orientated accountability and I'm definitely a processual accountability yeah I I like touch bases and I like people to ask me about what I'm doing but if you say you have to do it by this date or did you do that thing? Like it just raises, it It doesn't feel good for me. To me, and I think people are different energies, like those who are task oriented, yeah. like probably aren't best suited to me. I can write out that, but yeah. I don't work that way. And I think I've developed it a bit over the years now and that having that first conversation or that first session is really kind of asking people what kind of how they like to work because I have found that some people do want to be asked they want a little bit of homework not loads but they might say something like can you ask me next time it kind of holds me accountable (laughs) you know which I'm fine with and I just write a little note you know like ask about this but as a general rule most people don't they just want it to kind of flow and evolve and I know I know that you work across fields because you Mm -hmm. work with me (laughs) Do you see any difference across, say, like social work supervision or counselling supervision or is it fairly No. I mean, I actually work with, like, quite a few lawyers as well. Um, Yeah, loads of different professions, actually. So um, to be honest, no. Like, the type of work that they do um, is different, but the dilemmas and the things that they're wanting to process are fairly similar across the board. And as I said, there's quite a lot of people that are navigating challenging workplaces as well. And so we might never even talk about a client in a session, but helping someone navigate a workplace ultimately helps them free up capacity to then be able to work with their client. That's something I know very little about because I haven't worked for a while. In a workplace. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What would you, what's that situation? Like, what would you say to someone that is struggling in their workplace or with hierarchy or... I mean, it just really depends. There's so many different things. Um, I always talk about, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Cartman's drama triangle. And then it goes to the the drama to empowerment triangle. Yeah, and so I noticed that a lot of work, like not a lot of workplaces, but people are talking about challenging workplaces people are really stuck in this triangle. So it's there's always a victim, a perpetrator, and a saviour, I guess. So people kind of get caught up in this, this dynamic. And so it's really important just to help people get off the triangle and not kind of fall, accidentally fall into these roles. And I think that there's a number of reasons for that. Like systemically, the sector is really challenging and people are struggling so the people that we're working with issues are more complex people are more traumatized and that just ends up playing out some a lot of those dynamics end up playing out in workplaces in a way and I I use that as well but I also get asked often and I wonder for myself how you get off that 
the victim triangle. I call it the victim triangle. I know it's <laughs> yeah. like probably because the victim's my go-to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The triangle to the empowerment triangle. I think that's really interesting because it can be quite individual. I think the first step is recognizing it. So often for me, I will just kind of say to someone, oh, hey, have you heard about this triangle? <laughs> have you heard about this? It's really interesting. Do you think, and help them maybe see maybe some of that dynamic is maybe they are putting themselves in a, you know, or putting their boss or something in a particular role and then it's feeding in. So doing, so just pointing it out, I think that's the first step. And then, I mean, to get off the triangle, there's a whole bunch of ways, but I think one of them is just viewing your role in a different way. So it's just not feeding into that dynamic. Because I'm an energy worker, I guess. I, my speak energy is my language. But I always think of it as an energetic thing. Like once you're aware, you can go, oh, my energy's in victim or perpetrator or whatever, and I'm bouncing around. And then so what does that energy feel like in the empowerment and sort of gradually move myself there energetically? So I, I don't know how long I've been receiving supervision, but and initially I was like, okay, so I'm feeling really alone and supervision seems to be a thing, but I had no, actually like, it took me years to actually figure out how to use it well. Like I don't, I think <laughs> yeah, I was sort of yeah. showing up and being like, I'm a good girl. Like, yeah, I'm doing what I'm supposed to. My, yeah. Look, here is how I'm not like breaking any of the rules. And so oh, I okay. So you were like presenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah gotcha. Yeah. I didn't get yeah. it. Yeah, I think I was I missed out probably on a lot of opportunity for growth because of that. And what would you say to someone who's maybe in that or stepping in? Yeah. There isn't much explanation about it. It's sort of given as a blanket thing like, oh, you're burnt out, like supervision might help. Or, oh, you've got, I say it all the time on different Facebook groups. If someone has a dilemma, everyone's like, seek supervision. Yeah. Like it's a, oh, that that'll mean? solve it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't really given that a lot of thought that people might be coming and saying something, you know, differently because it is a scary it can be a scary thing you're sitting in front of someone you're (laughs) one-on-one you know it's a professional I think honestly I'd say allow it time to develop a relationship because some of the tricky things is people might come once or twice and then you know be like oh maybe it's not giving me what I need sometimes the beauty of it is developing that relationship so that you can trust someone or talk about it And I think as well, from a supervisory perspective, I'm really passionate about being vulnerable myself. So I think it's really important for people, I'll say leaders, I don't know if that's the right word, but people in those kind of roles to show vulnerability themselves, to make it okay for other people, because that's a critical component of our work. We really have to be vulnerable in order to kind of evolve and change and be reflective. For me, it was doing the supervisory training that made me go oh this is actually what supervision is yeah like see and because all the people that were doing the training with me were like older and we had to do a lot of role plays and they were just so vulnerable I was like I am not like I think I had a lot of fear around you know you go through your training and there's all this like fear based training Mm. like oh well if this happens then that there's not the teaching you how to actually seek good supervision which I think is a make or break of you not not in every instance but it's pretty important and you're not taught how to use that resource so no no there, there was something in seeing so seeing a group 
like it wasn't group supervision, but watching individual supervisions and seeing where it could go, that really expanded me. Yeah. 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 To to be more real with like, here's what I'm actually struggling with. Because I think, I think I saw things a little bit more, even though I do not work in black and white in my practice with my clients. Mm -hmm. I think I saw the supervisory practice as more of a um, gatekeeper in a support system. A little yeah. bit based on how it's it's shared. Yeah, maybe this like, oh, I'm sitting in front of someone that might be really, you know, good at what they do. I don't know. There's an element of kind of it's a bit intimidating. Yeah. Um, and I would say to people, if they don't know what they feel like, maybe, oh, I think I need supervision, but you don't know why. Or <laughs> go find a supervisor and say, look, I don't know. Can you tell me? you know, can you help me guide me? Because lots of people do that too. I have lots of people that come and say, look, I've never had supervision before. I don't really know what to expect. And so then we just kind of talk through, well, what are, what are their career goals? What are the things that they're struggling with? What are the things that are going really well? And then it just kind of evolves from there. So, but I would definitely say, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. I mean, you know, supervisors shouldn't be judgmental. I mean, I've heard it all. <laughs> I've heard so much. These are things that we're, cha- we're challenged with. And the fact that people are showing up to supervision shows me the type of person that they are, that they're wanting to evolve and be the best they can for their clients too. Oh, I love that. Is there, is there <laughs> any other aspects of supervision that I haven't asked on that you're thinking about? But I think it's really interesting to think about this doesn't apply to you and your own kind of practice, but I think people that might be working in areas where they receive supervision in a workplace is a really interesting thing. And I really would encourage people, and I'm noticing it more and more with workplaces, which is good, about people to seek external supervision as well, because I really don't think that workplaces or managers in the workplace through no fault of their own are able to give a balanced supervision or they kind of talk about four functions of supervision you know some theorists and I don't think that we can that people in the workplace can provide all of those functions it's quite limited so sometimes you might have to seek external do you want to um, tell the functions now you can now you're testing me, Gabrielle, about what all the functions are. Okay, so there um there's four functions. So it's basically like so administrative is kind of making sure that people are kind of up with ethics and policies and procedures. If you work in a workplace, you know you're doing notes and those kind of things. Those things that we sometimes aren't so good at doing. And supportive obviously speaks for itself around supporting the the practitioner. Um, you know, the same with education. So that's about educating and developing the person. And then mediation is kind of like being a bridge between, so if you're in the workplace, that's like a bridge between getting your view um, kind of up to management or vice versa. So you're kind of, a, you know, this the mediation component. And then in external supervision, I see it as like connecting people to more to do with the sector, like what's happening in the sector or your you know, say if you're a social worker, then what's happening with AASW, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of, I find it quite useful, the four functions to think about it. It just provides a bit of a framework sometimes. You enjoy promoting and supporting people having long lasting careers in the industry. And I would say it's a high churn rate. I don't exactly know what my question is, but do you have anything to say on that? Because it's, I've got a question bubbling, but it hasn't quite 
Yeah, I mean, this, you know, I say the sector and I'm I'm talking about anyone that's working in a helping profession. It's really not easy and people do get burnt out. They don't know what to do and they end up leaving. And it makes me so sad because even if, you know, say you work in a particular role, if you're not enjoying it, there's so, if you work in helping professions, there's so many different things you can do and skills are so transferable. So I really love helping people see their potential and develop their skills and move almost sidestep to a different role or even going into private practice and still helping people but in a different way. I think people sometimes feel stuck or feel, I I see this with child protection workers say that work in in statutory, um, for statutory um, child protection and they just feel stuck there. But what they don't know, and that might be, that's a really challenging role and there's loads of systemic issues and they've got so many transferable skills and so what I'd hate for them is just to leave the sector entirely and that maybe they can become a counsellor or work with disability or you know there's so many things that they could take those skills and use them so that's what I'm really passionate about. Yeah I agree so because I know when I reach that burnout up I don't know, I've been trying to find a different word for burnout because recently when I got that compassion fatigue thing, I think my soul was burnt out, but my energy and body wasn't. Yeah. It was just like I was, yeah, there was something out of balance. So I'm trying to find a new word. So for that. have you heard of like, because I was going to say it before, but there's this moral distress and moral apathy. It really speaks to me because it's basically where you morally, you don't feel that, yeah, you're, you're, it's more to do with the systems is that you're working in systems that morally you don't agree with, but you're kind of restricted to work with them. It's kind of like moral distress. Moral apathy is basically kind of like compassion fatigue. You know, you become, you're like, oh, yeah, whatever about. Oh, because I I had this, well, you've heard my blahs about this, but I've also had this, (laughs) um, when when I've been going through my counselling training, I found it very challenging because I do know that, the other roles that I'm carrying and provide a lot of liberation and freedom just to open those little ways of thinking different for people. But I don't believe in that our role as a counsellor is to get people back to the status quo. A lot of counselling work sometimes in the training is about regulation. So like, oh, will you get, will you regulate? So like sometimes we need a break, like to break Mm -hmm. down to to get to the new rather than regulating 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 I'll just go I'll just keep going to work I'll I'll, mm. I'll build up my muscles to get back to work I'll this oh, I've mm. got to push through to do, to look after my family I've got to push through because that it's like sometimes that's not the answer for me it's about like finding out individual circumstances and answers and movements and what's happening and mm. the world's changed so much yeah. even in the last few years that the answers that were provided even two years ago aren't the answers that it, as a no. general cohort that would I found that I, I don't know if it's moral apathy would be the words I'd use but I'm relating to the definition of it in terms of being Māori in Australia so we're carrying some of our energetic DNA imprints of trauma here but we're not mm. in the same cultural system but we're trying to enact the same cultural system so yeah. I often feel torn because I'm meeting people where they are but I'm getting drawn I'm talking energetically but I'm getting drawn into different energetic frequencies of where people are at and their cultural yeah. identity constantly which mm. sometimes depending on when they came to Australia they're assuming that that's what it is to be Māori 
the Māori landscape has changed so much in New Zealand. It, it, we're almost a yeah. different collective or what do they call it in um, di- diaspora? There's like a, an academic term when you, oh my God, I'm going to look it up. Sorry, it's going to bug me now. Diaspora refers to a large group of people who share a national or regional identity, but for a variety of reasons are living outside their ch- traditional homeland. Sociological yeah. brain coming in, but still don't even know how to say that word. Even right <laughs> We actually are forming a different... Your own identity. Identity. Yeah. As the space holder for that, sometimes having to meet the person in a place that their diasporic identity, their Australian yeah. identity has formed without any context of what I know. And then yeah. the Māori identity battling with the Western identity. So I'm, I'm quite often in a systematic battle inside of my own body. Yeah, which is exhausting. I don't want to do it anymore. No. <laughs> but I don't know how to. <laughs> no. I was actually doing a presentation yesterday on a healing-centered engagement. It's kind of like acknowledging that trauma-informed practice is great, but it's not enough and it's missing stuff. The term was coined by someone in America, an African-American man. He's like an activist and a researcher. Dawn Jinwright is his name. But, um, I mean, it's nothing new, particularly to Indigenous peoples. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's just a, a term that's really kind of taking traction, I've noticed. And basically it's identifying that we need not just to be, have trauma-informed practice, but we need to take it to the next step and we need to move into this healing space. And so it's identifying that a lot of our, you know, supporting people who have experienced trauma to be take it, be political and not clinical. So that's about supporting people to be empowered and influence change. So when we help people to then have their own collective action and take, you know, things into their own hands, actually that's really healing for the individual as well as for society. Because what happens, you know, say, for example, like lots of this moral distress is say if you work with lots of people that have had, you know, have experienced domestic and family violence, say, you might help that individual, but then you keep on saying the same situation over and over. And that's where that moral distress and moral apathy comes in because the system's not changing. And so this healing-centered practice is really interesting. It's like takes it to the next step. So it's like, well, we need to change the systems, but also you need to help the people that we work with to change the system. It's not necessarily up. It is up to us as practitioners, but it's also up to people with lived experience. You know, I just think it's really beautiful. And one of the concepts is around culture and identity. So supporting people to really connect with their culture and identity And that's really critical for healing. And sometimes we kind of miss that a bit with trauma-informed. Oh, my God. I Like, honestly, doing Akotoro Whanui and teaching Māori healing training, I I would say that is the thing that brings most people to the training. They do. They have that already healers. Like, they already know. Once you unlock that, they're they're already doing it in their community or whatever. But the actual Māori healing that happens by learning Māori healing within yourself because of the alienation from our own culture being over here for whatever reason people came over and then the trying to fit into boxes in different ways that you don't ever really fit into it's like essential and then maybe even go when you go back to New Zealand it has changed so then you feel a bit like you you know 
Yeah. Well, and one of the things is interesting because that's obviously for healers, like healers themselves. And so one of the components of this healing-centered engagement as well is about practitioners themselves and how we need to go on our own healing journey. And basically it's saying that trauma-informed practice doesn't really identify that and that we need to have our own collective action. We need to connect to culture and identity and also like identity in the sense of other groups and you know what I mean? Even if you know, whatever that might be, what are the kind of, where's our sense of belonging, takes all those concepts and says that as, as practitioners or, you know, working in the field that we need to do that ourselves. And then the very nature of the fact that we're working with people that have tra- been traumatized is that we need to ourselves be on a healing journey all the time too. Yeah, um, I love that. I was thinking about this last night um, after a client that because the thing I loved about studying counseling was the real emphasis on person informed, like the person always has their answer and they give you the answers mm-hmm. and you move at their pace. But sometimes I don't know if it's always helpful if, if someone's received say a lot of counseling or a lot of healing and they're glooping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're stuck in it. Yeah. 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 And that, so it's like, what we, how do we move from not being person informed, but not also reintroducing trauma by forcing them in a new direction even if it's like a helpful one to move someone from their own will but not from their like but from their loop that's how what I consider healing is like just opening different doorways for different pathways that you and with something that I think that we're doing in the space I'll call us healing practitioners social workers counselors psychologists what yeah, all, the all encompassing I all always struggle to know what to say I say yeah yeah same professions I don't know it's a bit stupid same, but yeah because <laughs> yeah, I don't like the word helper either yeah like how how we hold that in in an empowered way he like and this is this whole concept as well it's saying like you know, we don't forget about trauma-informed practice. They're not opposites. It's just building on trauma-informed practice. But he's saying that what happened, what's kind of happened over time is that trauma, as much as we don't intend to, it we end up, when we talk about trauma, we end up maybe being deficit-based because we're always keeping people who are talking about trauma, which isn't always helpful. Like, we want to acknowledge it, but then as you said, we don't want to end up in this loop. And so you will do it all the time is that changing our language is that healing can often be more, it's a positive word. And so it's kind of thinking, and I really like, you know, when I was doing some research for it, I was saying 30 years ago before trauma and pra- trauma-informed practice, the question would be, what is wrong with you? And then when they moved in trauma-informed practice, when they started talking about trauma-informed practices, what happened to you? And then with healing-centered practice, the question is, what is right with you? So it's building on strengths. Isn't that beautiful? About like language is so important. And even when I was kind of looking into this and, you know, I talked to some like Aboriginal friends and things about the word healing. And even for some people, the word healing doesn't sit right, particularly in the First Nations communities, because some people see it as implying that you have to get over something and that there's this end phase that you have to get to, whereas people shouldn't have to get over really horrible circumstances that have been done to them, you know? 
So I so agree. I just got sick of reframing words once someone would point out where it went. Like for, when yeah. I did my degree, I got I re- went off empowerment for a while because that they had talked about how you know like a, for there was a yeah. period where all the government strategies had empowering everything. empowerment, and, child protection, yeah. resilience, resilience. Yeah, now I can't even like, use oh. the word empowerment. I just oh, I just never that never occurred to me. To me, it's a really beautiful word. So I think it also goes back to you know in our relationship as we develop you know working with people about checking in with them what works for them individuals so yeah yeah, yeah. so true and so when a person is realizing that they're having anything happen to them you know like a pra- practitioner if they're realizing okay like I think I've got I'm, I'm nearing some burn we'll say burnout but it, for, for whatever yeah. reason or whatever underlying thing yeah. What what does self care look like? Because I feel like this is another thing that's thrown away. Similar yeah, it's to, a buzzword. Go get, yeah, go get a supervisor. <laughs> How's your self care? Oh my! Like I think I have one of the best self care practices of anyone I know, but yeah. I still get tired and exhausted and stressed yeah. and burnt out. Well, um, and I think that's the thing is that it's going to be inevitable. You know what I mean? Unless you live in a silo. <laughs> You know, you don't work, you don't have, you know, family stresses or personal stresses, you know what I mean? Like, I know that sounds really depressing, but, you know, so it's kind of about, it's, I think the first step is really recognizing it and understanding it. But I probably piss people off all the time because I think some people come to me and want some kind of magic wand. And the thing is, is that it's so individual. So it's individual for ourselves, but also the symptom that we're experiencing is individual. It needs an individual response. You say, oh, go and go for a run or, you know what I mean? Go do some exercise. Well, if you're really heightened and really anxious, that might not be getting your heart rate up really high might not actually be the best response. So maybe even you personally, that doesn't do anything for you so there's so many things so often the session is kind of trying to unpack okay well what works for you what doesn't work for you what's your symptom you know like because also like if you're thinking about if you're really dissociating like you're feeling really numb feeling that apathy or whatever then going and listening to some really depressing music or might not be the best thing you might need to talk to someone or you know so that's something I'm quite passionate about about really trying to think about what's the symptom like burnout happens or vicarious trauma happens for a reason so like even sometimes working in the same place you might not actually be able to move past it because it's the it's the the workplace or whatever it is that's creating it yeah I so agree I so agree so that's really annoying because then people are like, what, why can't, you know, yeah. people just want a thing. So we end up with this list of self-care things and then when you don't do it, you feel bad because, yeah, you, you know, exactly. like. exactly. <laughs> You've just got added more things to your to-do list, which yeah. is probably part of why you're already stressed. I, I heard a really beautiful thing which helps me at least consider where I'm at and it's like, I, I don't know if this is the terms I love exactly, but it's like the difference between um, masculine and feminine needs. Yeah, so yeah. Like the feminine wants to be out and about, to move, to flow, to dance, to go to yoga. And then the masculine wants to isolate and like watch TV and Netflix or read a book. Ah, and yeah, and it yeah, sort yeah. of allowed me to give myself permission because I used to force myself if I felt down to go out. Maybe I've had like too much, like, okay, it's not social connection, but too much human, human, humanity. 
yeah <laughs> too much humanity <laughs> sounds funny but yeah and yeah. So yeah. I like that idea as well as a starting point to figure out for myself a lot of people that come to see me are not really in tune with their emotions because I think sometimes the work and also it's what we've learned as well but I think the work sometimes people kind of push it down and so they're not even quite sure where they are and so it's kind of just getting people to stop and think and kind of tune into yourself you ask yourself right now what do you need and even after you've had whatever it might be a session or a phone call or something with the client just stopping for a few seconds it doesn't have to be a 30 minute thing but just say okay how did that sit with me how am I feeling just acknowledge it I just think that's really important I think we're kind of yeah it's been taught that we shouldn't be doing that I always love talking with you anyway. Yeah, thank you so much. And I really appreciate how you hold me and and the way that you hold me as a profession as well, allowing you to show up however, whatever, in all my personalities and ways and roles. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.